Black Doctors Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I am Steven, your host. This week we're going to jump back into the second half of a conversation we started last week with Dr. Anthony Douglas. He is a general surgery resident. He's currently at the University of Chicago Medical Center. And I want to make it clear that the opinions expressed in this interview are our own. They're not representative of our employers. Before we jump into the rest of that conversation, I want to talk about two things that happened recently in social media. One was a, well, social media and real life. One was a horrifying story about an obstetrician and a very complicated delivery with a very, very terrible outcome. Uh, Such a horrible story. It was difficult to read. Essentially, there was a shoulder dystocia, which if you worked in labor delivery, if you're a medical student rotating through the service, if you're an anesthesiologist, if you're any in any way, if you're a pediatrician, if you're involved in uh, working on labor delivery, you know the significance of a shoulder dystocia where a baby gets stuck uh, during delivery. And the story is so horrifying. The baby was stuck, was not coming out, eventually going back for cesarean delivery. The baby did not make it through the procedure. The baby was horribly disfigured, mutilated during the process, and the family was uh, received some mistruths, or and the family felt that the hospital system was not completely honest and straightforward during this experience, and uh, not surprisingly, is resulting in a lawsuit. The information that gets released, you know, I just want to say it's so tough to really figure out what's going on in these cases. Number one, there's the media, there's the headlines, there's the viral content, where if you describe things a certain way, you know you're going to get a lot of clicks, you're going to get a lot of views. That is a given. Number two, you have a family that has experienced a devastating loss, and they absolutely deserve, you know, they can never truly be made whole, but they have the uh, judicial system at their disposal, and they should use it appropriately so. You have, on the other hand, these clinicians, this obstetrician, the labor delivery nurses, the anesthesiologist that was involved. You have folks that, you know, didn't come to work expecting to have a horrible outcome for their patient. Nobody in healthcare expects these things to happen. It's not intentional, obviously. It's an accident. Accidents happen. Bad things happen. Patients have bad outcomes, unfortunately. It's the nature of the business that we're in. And it is so easy to Monday morning quarterback. And it's, it's insane that we're Monday morning quarterbacking based upon a viral caption from the shade room, right? You see these things, you're like, oh my God, how could this happen? And it's, it's, it's you know, stuff, stuff happens, unfortunately. And there's always more to the story as physicians, as healthcare systems. We are extremely limited in the things that we can say about these situations. So we're not getting the full story. All we're hearing is one side of the issue. A very similarly horrifying story was uh, recently released. This was at a out of a hospital in California, where a young woman had surgery, kind of a cancer reconstructive surgery, the end of a long devastating course of cancer that she'd survived. And she unfortunately had a complication in the recovery room. And yet again, the information that was released in the media, although this time it was, you know, I read the story with my own eyes. I looked at one of the pieces of documentation, which was kind of a a printout. It looked like from um, an epic 
electronic health care records that kind of talked about when the intubation occurred and some of the complications. And, you know, being an anesthesiologist, it's easy to kind of break down like, okay, um, the patient experienced uh, likely uh, respiratory arrest, possibly laryngospasm, the patient was intubated, there was an arrest, there was other measures such as a transesophageal echo probe being placed. It was noted that the patient was uh, no longer intubated and had to be reintubated. And it's just incredible, like when you put this story up and what people see, what people say on Twitter, like, oh, well, how do they not recognize the intubation? How come there wasn't any entitled CO2 monitoring? How come there wasn't this or wasn't that? And again, it is so easy to sit back in the comfort of our homes and judge these physicians, these healthcare providers, these nurses, and list the things that they they could have or should have done. And I think, you know, of all times now when burnout is so real and so present, we do need to extend that grace to people and understand that we don't have all of the details and have some faith and trust and believe that the people that were on the scene did everything that they could do to prevent this horrible outcome that ended up happening despite their best effort. When I was an anesthesiology resident, I rotated through a surgical ICU. Dr. Gary Ahn was one of the trauma surgeons that I was able to work under to learn from. One of the smartest people I've ever met in my life and one of the most reasonable people I've ever met. He had this quote that I, I, I use very frequently. I always give credit where credit's due. He would say, let's stop for a minute and assume that everyone's reasonable. This was so helpful, you know, when you get that ridiculous consult from some service and you just want to throw your hands up in the air and say, what are they thinking? He would say, hey, let's stop for a minute and assume everyone's reasonable. More often than not, people don't come to work to uh, be lazy or to not do their job. Yes, it happens. And eventually, like, you'll kind of figure out who those uh, bad actors are. But first, give them the benefit of the doubt. Assume that they have completed medical school, residency, fellowship training. They're subspecialized. This is their specialty. And they want what's best for the patient. Or at the very least, they don't want a bad outcome. That is the basis for the information that they're providing you. And you ask them for, for their advice. So either you, you, know, you take their advice or you do whatever it was that you're doing before you ask them for, for their advice. But definitely stop and, and think, you know, what is the reason why they're giving me this advice? As clinicians, maybe we've seen a very bad outcome when we've done things uh, one way versus another. A lot of the things that we do, you know, there's evidence-based practice, and then there's the experiential, the anecdotal medicine that we all are guilty of practicing. So I, I think in summary, you know, these stories are going to continue to come out because every day there are hundreds and thousands of complications that occur in healthcare. It's the nature of the job that we are taking part in. But, you know, as professionals, the very least we can do is just, we can be a little slower to jump on bandwagons. We can give people, our colleagues, benefit of the doubt. We can try to provide additional information to patients. We can hopefully reassure our patients based upon our breadth of knowledge and the things that we know that happen behind the scenes that cannot be commented on. Times are hard enough as it is, people are getting burnt out already. There's unfortunately bad outcomes that occur all the time. The very least we can do is just extend a little bit of grace to each other in our times of need.
But I digress. At this point, we're going to jump back into our conversation that we started last week with Dr. Anthony Douglas. Again, he is a general surgery resident in his third year residency, starting his research block. I had the pleasure of working with him during my critical care fellowship, and we were in the trenches together in the surgical ICU. He would be rounding on the trauma service. I would come in at you know five forty-five, six o'clock, and I was coming at six in the morning. I'm not going to lie; they came in at five forty-five. I come in at six, six o five. And he would already be on the unit rounding on his trauma surgery, uh, his trauma service patients. Then I would see him at seven for turnover and just all around great dude, hard worker, um, man of the people. If he didn't listen to first to, to last week's episode, definitely go back and check that out. He kind of shares his story, how he had some influential mentors, people that made a huge impact in his life that helped steer him in the right direction and become the physician that he is today. So we're going to jump back into the rest of the conversation. We're going to talk about mentorship and guidance and interviews and interview etiquette. So without further ado, here we go. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So and then having the attending mentorship, which, uh, like I said, was ultimately what really made me successful uh, in the application cycle. So I, I hope, you know, for the listeners and especially the pre-med listeners and the medical student listeners that they really take heed to um, some of the things I said, because ultimately that's really what uh, helped me. Yeah. And this is obviously on top of getting the grades and passing the exams and all that stuff. I want to dig in though on the mentorship because I, I'm not, I'm not a person that really uses or has a lot of mentors. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a bit standoffish, but I, I know when I need to reach out and I have several yeah. times reached out to mentors like, Hey, I need help with this specific thing. But people, there's there's this uh, misconception of mentorship because I get a lot of emails and like, hey, can you look over my personal statement? Can you answer questions? So everybody is so close now with social media. You can just hit people up as a pre-med medical student resident. When you're asking for advice, whether it's a stranger on Instagram or it's it's an actual mentor and know that those are two completely separate things. Right. Um, Number one, you need to have specific questions. Um, the number of emails I get that's like, Hey, I'm think I'm interested about being a military physician. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I'm going to hit you back with a, Do you have any specific questions? Um, yeah. cause that's where we're going to start this conversation. One, you need to have a specific conversations when it yeah. comes to actual faculty mentorship, everybody as, as an attending and becoming attending again, there's a ton of emails flying into inboxes every day. You will get lost in that pile of emails. So yeah. once you reach out and try to establish some mentorship or can you review my CV or whatever, what you need to follow up. And number two, try to schedule actual time with these people. Like you mentioned talking with the chair and with your program directors, yeah. you need to schedule 30 minutes to sit down. You're going to have their more or less undivided attention. They're still thinking about their, their inbox and, and reviewing applications and all this other stuff that they have to do. Right. But at least you are in their face for Mm -hmm. 20 minutes, 30 minutes. You're going to be able to talk and start to build that relationship that Anthony just mentioned, where now they know you and they can talk about you in the the applications. Right. I mean, like I said, my relationship with my mentor started by wanting to put in work. Right. Like I, I was looking for research projects and I told her, you know, I'm looking for research in order to to strengthen my application for general surgery residency. And then that relationship developed over time because I could uh, continue to do work with her and I continue to 
demonstrate that, you know, I was serious about this, uh, about applying to general surgery residency. And I think that speaks to the other part of what's important about mentorship is uh, it's on you to develop that relationship, right? Because like yeah. you are one of many students or who all are seeking mentorship and seeking the same things. And the number of, like you said, the number of inboxes we get, the number of emails we get for, you know, help along the way or advice and all these things. Like if you don't take the time to be persistent and continue to develop that relationship, then like it'll fall to the wayside. So it's really what you put into it. I'm not saying, you know, be overbearing and email your mentor every day, but I'm saying like staying in contact, updating your mentor, Mm -hmm. um, meeting with them, uh, you know, continuing to seek other opportunities with that, that mentor to, to do research projects or, uh, to get involved in other things like these things are up to you to to be stay persistent. You know, I have a number of I've had, you know, n- since being a resident and even as a medical student, I've had a number of people reach out to me and some of them, you know, I continue to have a relationship with and continue to help throughout their journey. And then there's others who kind of just like fall to the wayside. And then you like, well, you know, what happened? Like, you know, there's there is it's hard to when for us specifically, when we have so many people reaching out to us, that if you're not saying persistent, it's hard to continue to maintain that relationship if, you know, the effort isn't met on the other end. Yeah, yeah especially, you know, in, in, in Dr. Douglas case, he's still a resident. So this boy is uh, putting out 90, 100 hour weeks, 120 yeah. hour weeks. <laughs> No, no. 14 days straight. The ACG is listening. It's an 80-hour week for some 80 hours. No, yeah, they don't overwork them, man. They were were, living a good life in Chicago. Um, How long was that relationship with your mentor, by the way? It sounds like at least two years before you were applying. I mean, I still have a relationship with her to this day. But, yeah, I uh, started at my first month of third year. Um, yeah. And to this day, I still have a relationship with her. And so, yeah, it's been it's been some time now. So so look at where you are, whether you're a medical student or <coughs> resident and plan for that, like two years, out because you need time to cultivate these relationships. When I you know, I can only help people so much. I, I review personal statements. I review CVs, but I can only help so much when I'm just meeting you for the first time or for the second time. But right. as uh, Anthony did, when you have that longitudinal relationship that you've cultivated, um, it, it really means so much more. So, so you did all that. You interviewed because um, that's a that's a big part, right? People are are interviewing. Back in my day, you know, we had to book all these interviews. We had to schedule travel. You know, you're already broke and you got to pay for flights um, or you got to drive to all these interviews. Yeah. But now, you know, TikTok generation, um, it's as easy as jumping <laughs> on Zoom. Not, hold on. I'm not TikTok. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a millennial, my man. OK. <laughs> uh, right now, you know, you got to jump on Zoom and, and you interview and that, you know, everything has its pros and cons. And, um, <clears throat> you know, what are I know you wrote a paper actually <laughs> specifically about let me pull this out my notes. Uh, for black medical students and virtual interviews, you talked about some of the uh, things to to watch out for or, or um, 
Well, mm-hmm. I'm sure you can explain it much better than I can, but let's talk mm-hmm. about the interview season and how people can set themselves up for success. Yeah, I think um, so a few things, especially in the in the virtual era, the you know, the the article we wrote was to give, you know, program directors and faculty uh, just a window, uh, a brief view of what it's like to be a, an African-American student interviewing in the virtual era. And we talked about, you know, some of the special considerations that we go through um, when evaluating programs, but also preparing for the interview. Right. And we talked about how a lot of us rely on the residency profile pictures to uh, identify whether we have community or safety in a a residency program that we're looking at. We talked about belonging and how it's difficult to assess belonging, especially for, you know, uh, underrepresented minority in medicine, how um, how much you will belong and have community in that program without being there in person. And so to do that virtually takes a lot more effort. And so not only relying on those residency profile pictures, but also uh, based on the brief interactions that we have virtually. So, you know, the 20 minute interview conversations that the you know, the three 20 minute interview conversations that you have during the interview is the only time you have to assess whether, you know, you really belong in that environment or not. You know, a lot of the programs during my interview cycle had like the socials the night before. And we talked about even in that paper that sometimes those socials become, um, you know, the majority of the conversation, the, a lot of the conversation is um, surrounded around uh, topics that uh, and conversation that relates to the majority and not really to, um, you know, candidates and people of color. Right. They become conversations about, you know, like. <sighs> Fly fishing. You might have to delete this part. <laughs> <laughs> what are they talking about? Why lives matter? Huh? It's in the paper, but it's just like it becomes conversations that are hard for us to relate to, right? Like about hiking and about traveling and about things that, you know, for, you know, BIPOC specifically, some conversations that we don't necessarily relate to. And so trying to find your uh, ability, trying to find an ability to relate to people that you don't tip, you might not have much in common with was a struggle, especially when the conversations were surrounded around things that often apply to, you know, Caucasian Americans, right? And so that was uh, another portion of the virtual interview that was kind of made things a little difficult and things that we had to to work around. I think when I interviewed, it was around the time George Floyd passed away. And so a lot of residency programs didn't start their DEI committees until after that summer, which I felt like said a lot about the program. Right. And so when I was evaluating programs, when I heard those kind of things, it kind of was like a red flag in the back of my mind. Like, wow, you know, DEI wasn't uh, uh, important to you until, you know, this happened. And so these were all things that kind of we we dealt with in that you know, students will continue to deal with is how to assess your own fit in a program while also trying to be relatable to the people that you're interviewing with and interacting with. Um, yeah. You know, for me, 
uh, we really got into the into the weeds in this uh, article. You know, we uh, we even talked about appearance for the interview. So, yeah. And, you know, I'll be actually interested to ask you about this, too, because I've had students come up to me and ask you me shaved about, your beard. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've had students come up to me, ask me about locks. Yeah. So I want to hear what you think. But, you know, when I was applying general surgery is a conservative field. Right. Like it's uh, been it for a long time was dominated by white males. Right. And like very much like orthopedic surgery is in other fields are uh, have more, more of a conservative history. And so I knew that in order to avoid whatever uh, misconceptions or uh, whatever biases that can be uh, applied to me, I tried to make myself appear as though, you know, uh, clean shaven to avoid those type of situations. So uh, I shaved my beard. Uh, I was I was clean shaven for all of interviews and I was honestly frustrated by it. I didn't want to do it, but, you know, uh, ultimately, you know, to change a system, the easiest way is to change it from within and not from the outside. And so, you know, now that I'm a resident, I rock it how I want to. But, uh, you know, I, I, I did what was necessary. But I'm curious what your thoughts are, you know, because I get the question a lot. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Which I mean, and if you saw uh, Anthony's uh, interview picture, was, you know, I showed up expecting this little baby face, 17 year old looking kid. And now he walks in in purple and gold uh, scrubs with the gold chain and the Rick Ross beard. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so and we did an episode on this previously about professionalism, quote unquote, and how that is the term is 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 problematic and, and yeah. can be weaponized. Yeah. Personally, I got, you know, the Caesar or Fade when I was applying for uh, residency, because to mm. your point, you know, I didn't want any uh, perceptions to mm. inhibit my chance at matching. I right. didn't have a backup plan. Um, you know, first person in medical school still was really figuring out, you know, how this whole whole system worked. Yeah. And I didn't want anything to keep me from a potential uh, match for residency. That was my number one goal was yeah. to match in, in residency. So yes, I was clean shaven during interviews. I had a nice quote unquote professional Caesar mm-hmm. haircut. You type it, you know, no one mm-hmm. finds offensive. Everybody just loves and accepts. Mm-hmm. And to your point, once I established myself in residency uh, by year two, I started growing my hair out and I freeform locked uh, for better or worse, uh, by the end of residency and retrospect, you know, maybe I should have got him professionally done. Um, but I, I freeformed. And then, yeah. uh, you know, coming back as a fellow, I continued, I, you know, I relocked because I was coming out of the Navy and, and all that. So I have locks and typically have a beard, but I had to do a fit, you you know, fit testing. Navy? You can... No, no, there's a, there's a book. I should post a picture that has like the specific dimensions of the haircut you're supposed to have like it can't be thicker than like three quarters of an inch on the side and yeah. it's, it's uh now for a year i grew my hair out that's why if you look at my instagram it's some crazy pictures i had some some crazy hair that last year because i was yeah. trying to like stay in the rules but i also wanted to lock and like this yeah. as soon as i finished my last shift in the navy i went to a loctician and got my hair locked um mm. but yeah absolutely you know and and if you ask different people you're gonna get different mm. answers. I don't yeah. judge. I don't care if you had face tattoos, uh, gauges in your ear, um, mm. sleeves. 
whatever makes you happy. Um, and you'll get different answers from different people. Some people say it's more important that I be accepted the way I am uh, with flocks, with earrings, with whatever. And mm-hmm. I 100% support that. Just for right. me, I was uh, I was concerned that that could neg- negatively impact my chance at matching. So that, that that's my my answer. I think ultimately you have to be willing to accept you know, the, the, that there might be biases applied to you based on your appearance and, you know, the, um, uh, and I think ultimately the decision is yours, right? If you, for the black, black women, if you want to wear your natural hair, uh, for black men, if you want to wear a beard or locks or whatever it is like that, that decision is ultimately yours. You just have to be willing ultimately to, to accept, you know, that that is a risk. And uh, if that's a risk you want to take, then you take it. You know, I, I think it's unfortunate that we still live in a climate where we have to think about these things, but it, it's the reality of being black in America. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well, now, you know, you got the beer going out. We'll see what happens for your uh, fellowship interviews. If you see uh, Aunt Douglas with, with the, the clean shaven, uh, <laughs> baby face look you know it's a uh, interview season again i guess <laughs> i don't know I'm, I'm i don't know if i'm gonna do it again we'll see if you we'll see. if you interviewed today would you would you cut your locks interviewed for Anything. well for the job so i had i had locks and i interviewed for my job okay, okay. Um, so yeah they're here to stay now yeah. unless i start thinning and then uh you know, I think that's the important point is you got to get there first. Right. 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 Once you get there, you can you kind of can do do what you will, but get there first. You know, absolutely. Let's talk about residency um, yeah. in the time that we have left, because you match uh, uh, full disclosure. These are our own uh, opinions does not reflect <laughs> upon those of our employers. Yeah. Um, but you matched at residency at the University of Chicago. So close to home. <laughs> What has your experience been? You know, honestly, the University of Chicago has kind of been a hidden gem for me. When I was first, uh, you know, looking at places, uh, I, you know, for the, being completely transparent and honest, I was I only really applied to the University of Chicago to have an option close to home, right? Because, mm. like, I was, I've been in the Midwest my whole life. I was ready to get out. I was ready to go far but my interview with the University of Chicago really swept me off my feet. You know, one part of, for a number of reasons. One, my interactions with the faculty, I felt like uh, even for the, you know, uh, Caucasian attendings, like the majority of the the interviews I had with the faculty, those individuals seemed to be um, aware and woke, if you want to use that term, about the issues that um, the issues that impact people of color, right? And the reason is because that uh, at the University of Chicago, we serve such a diverse patient population that in some ways you kind of need to understand if you're serving those patients, what uh, are some of the, the issues that affect the, your patients and their outcomes? So um, in, in my conversations alone, and we kind of already talked about it in the virtual interview space, assessing fit, but my interactions and my conversations with those attendings kind of spoke to me saying um, and showed me that like, okay, these are people that are accustomed to working with underrepresented minorities and also 
are aware of the issues that affect the patients that they, uh, the patients of color that they serve. You know, the other part of it, big part of it was the diversity in the faculty. So, you know, I mentioned that I was interested in trauma and acute care surgery. And when I was looking at residency program, um, different programs, I noticed that within the trauma department alone, that there were four African-American males in the trauma department, which is unheard of. Right. Like most of the places I interviewed that you were lucky to have two faculty that were African-American in the department of surgery alone. But within like the trauma department in and of itself have four African-American males. So that stood out to me, you know, seeing Dr. Rogers, Dr. Hampton, Dr. Wilson and um, Dr. Williams picture as a, a African-American applicant was like knocked my socks off. So then I had to start taking it even more seriously. Right. And ultimately, like my decision was reaffirmed by probably the first couple of weeks of being there when I learned that, like, you know, 77 percent of our patient population is African-American. And, yeah. you know, go and not only is our patients African-American, but the people who work there, the ancillary staff is is diverse. The you know, the resident other residency programs were diverse, the OBGYN department, the EM department. It's, it's the, Liddy. And it's, <laughs> I, but, uh, yeah, no, it is. It is really Liddy, man. You don't know how much it does for you going to work and walking yeah. around and like not being the only one and seeing other doctors of color and then not being weird or abnormal to see like a black physician. Like you can, you walk at, at other institutions I've been at before, like you walk in and you see somebody of African descent, your assumption is they, your last assumption is they're a doctor, right? Right. The University of Chicago, like, is not, you, you see a someone black walking around a hospital, they could easily be your physician. They could be, right. you know, they could be a, a healthcare administration. They could be, they could be anything, right? And so, that um, that in and of itself really like reaffirmed my decision and made me feel like I was at the right place when I chose the University of Chicago. So I yeah. ultimately, you know, residency is hard, of course, and being black in residency is hard no matter where you're at. But uh, I think going to a place where you feel like you have community is, you know, um, having community in a residency training program and uh, at the institution that you work for is is so invaluable, and you don't know how much it truly does for your own well being throughout residency. Yeah, because residency is hard no matter what program you're in, but uh, especially if you're gonna be there for a long time, you want a place where you feel like you belong and you have resources. So ultimately, I'm very happy with my decision and where I'm at. Yeah. And full disclosure, you know, as the host of this podcast, I try to focus on more positive things. I don't think I'd ever have people on to bash a residency program. So, you know, that if if you hear a program mentioned on the show, it's probably mm-hmm. going to be in a positive light because they're doing something right. And yeah. it's crazy because I finished residency in 2018 and then I come back four years later and in those four years, you know, I left right as the trauma center opened. So the mm-hmm. influx of black faculty members, the residency programs were more diverse when I came mm-hmm. back after the four years. And I had a great time when I was, you know, here back in 2014 to 2018. And we had yeah. our house after diversity committee and we'd have, you know, 40 plus 
black or, or residents of color, we'd hang out and, and do stuff. So coming mm-hmm. back, I mean, like uh, Anthony said, is it's invaluable. The, uh, you know, I knew when I was in a surgical ICU, I would come to morning trauma sign out and I see uh, Anthony and Jelani and we'd be sitting there, uh, you know, making, you know, making uh, faces. Well, at first we were wearing masks. Trying to um, get trouble, man. Yeah, man, I, you know, I'd be a little zesty when I was post-24. Uh, post <laughs> That was that. I'm about, I got a job already. Glow. That's what that was. <laughs> uh, but but you know, coming from Howard um, University of Chicago is, is it has so much to offer, and um, you know, Anthony did a, a great job of, of summing that up. Um, as we close, a big controversy always comes up on uh, Med Twitter, um, but 24 hour shifts versus 12 hour shifts. So I'm curious about your thoughts. Mm, that's interesting. So I, um, I'm, I actually prefer 12 hour shifts. I'll be honest. Um, we do a lot of 24s as general surgery, uh, residents, but I think, I think 24 hour shifts is unnatural is the easiest way for me to put it. I think it's, um, not safe for patients and it's not safe for, you know, uh, doctors as well. Um, and, you know, some of my old school, uh, general surgery co-residents and some buddies from other programs would probably get on me for saying this, but, uh, I do, I, I think it's, I do think it's unnatural and it's unsafe. And, um, you know, I can think of multiple times being on post 24 and, you know, nearly being delirious, you know, rounding and it's exhausting. And I just think it's not, uh, I think, I think in this day and age in 2023, uh, there's a more efficient way we can think of and a more a more efficient and a more safe way we can think about caring for patients. And um, uh, ultimately, I'm, I'm definitely a fan of 12 hour shifts. I think it's 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 safer for patients. And I think I think you 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 get more out of. You know, I think the 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 downside and the what people say negative about the 20, 12 hour versus twenty four is that you know being in the hospital you innately learn more, right? Because you see more things in a twenty four hour shift, you are involved in more cases, and there's just like the more you're in the hospital, the more you learn, right? Yeah. But ultimately, I think there's a a V max, like a, that there's a, a plateau to that. And I don't think, I think that plateau is definitely reached during a 24 hour shift, right? Like the being, I've been in, I've been in the hospital when I've been exhausted during a 24 hour shift. And uh, I just don't think it, it adds much value to my education nor to, you know, my care for patients. So I would definitely say if there was one thing, you know, I'm all for the 80 hour work week and, you know, uh, and I have no complaints about how many hours we work. But if I did change one thing, it would be getting rid of the 24 hour shift. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's good hearing your thoughts. Yeah. The TikTok generation. And not TikTok, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Me, though, man. Thank you. Oh, for well, Dr. Douglas, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's really been inspiring to me to hear your story. I mean, we worked together for a year and I didn't know a lot of the things that you discussed. 
So it's truly been a pleasure having you on and, and hearing more about your life. Appreciate you having me, Dr. Bradley. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. You're starting, you know, your, your quest and research. What, what are you going to be researching, by the way? Um, I'm doing some advocacy related stuff. So I'm trying to do something a little different uh, with my research time. And instead of doing kind of the a traditional bench or outcomes research, I'm trying to do uh, things related to um you know, surgical advocacy. And because I'm interested in trauma, I'm going to do things related to violence prevention. So thinking about uh, interventions to help prevent community and urban violence and um, researching that those type of interventions and, um, you know, trying to truly have an impact on the Southside community in terms of that. So whatever research that allowed me to to you know, uh, I'm trying to essentially build a curriculum for uh, residents who are interested in doing advocacy work, whether that's in trauma or whether that's in, you know, uh, breast cancer disparities or whatever you name it. Um, a curriculum that allows them to start thinking about building a career and being a surgical act- activist. So that's awesome. kind of what I'll spend my time doing. Yeah, yeah. I see it. Excited to see how that progresses over the next couple of years. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thank you for the work you're doing on the South Side of Chicago. The community uh, is much better uh, for you being there and, and working and providing the amazing care that you provide. Appreciate you, man. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thanks for tuning in to Black Doctors Podcast. Uh, we're here every Monday because representation matters. Yeah. <laughs> if you've been listening to the show and haven't already, definitely follow us on social media. Go to iTunes or Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Leave a ranking and a comment and share with your friends.